You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's story, which is outside the realm of our normal tales of combat and survival, we're going to interview a Gold Star spouse uh, to share her story and that of her husband who was killed in combat. More on that in just a moment. First, our normal announcements to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, make sure you guys uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, give a thumbs up and a like to all the content there, smash that like button. We certainly appreciate it. Leave comments uh, as well on what you like about the show. Speaking of that, continue to leave Apple reviews or wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. That'll help grow it. Uh, get the algorithm working in our favor and get more people in front of these stories that we're telling each and every week. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. And uh, it will uh, allow you to do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way to help out. Veterans charities and veterans causes just by doing your Amazon shopping works from your smartphone as well, but you have to go to hazardground.com first. So uh, it'll redirect it to the app. If you're on your smartphone, keeps all your credit card information saved, really user friendly. So again, hazardground.com before you do your Amazon shopping. All right. This week's guest um, is the wife of the, of a late army major. His name is Ed Murphy. Uh, he spent 16 years in the United States army was a signal officer. Uh, his last assignment was in Afghanistan in 2005, uh, part of the 173rd and the Southern European Task Force at the time that he was killed in a helicopter accident on April 6, 2005. And she is here to share his story and her story and the sacrifice of her family. She is Barkley Murphy joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Barkley, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Really a pleasure to be with you all today. Thanks for including a gold star wife in these stories. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And and I should have mentioned, you know, one of the, one of the great things that you've done uh, in your time since your husband was killed, uh, you've worked extensively uh, with the Gold Star Wives of America uh, to change laws that were written many, many years ago uh, for survivors' benefits and spouses' benefits after their spouse was killed in combat. And it has been a long slog. Uh, but finally getting reversed in 2017 and finally getting more benefits your way this year in 2023. We're going to hear all about that as well. And I should have mentioned that from the top, but the Gold Star Wives of America, an amazing foundation uh, that really brings together so much uh, and so many, so many people uh, and so many wives who, who have, who have experienced great loss. And I can only imagine sort of the, the togetherness that you guys all feel because th- there's nothing like it, right? I mean, this is um, th- there's, it's such a, a, I can't even imagine the range of emotions. I mean, obviously you loved your husband and you were so proud of what he did, but in the same, re- same response, same respect, his sacrifice for his country is a sacrifice for you and your family. And that's always, always uh, tough to sort of reconcile all those feelings. Well, yeah. And I think that the thing that's so unique about gold star wives and, and military spouses in general that are surviving spouses is we are a unique breed. Um, our spouse's job was our job too. Uh, being a military wife or military spouse is a full-time job in and of itself, even outside of other careers. And so when you lose a spouse in the line of duty or in other reasons, military related, you not only 
only lose your spouse, but you lose your entire way of life. So it's very different from a civilian situation. Um, you lose your friends, you lose the way of life that you've been used to, your support system, all of those things. In my case, um, when my husband was killed, we were posted near Vicenza, Italy, um, a, wor- a move halfway around the world to come back home after he was killed, leaving my neighborhood, my friends, my entire support system to really start very fresh. And it's a little bit different for military spouses or surviving military spouses as well in that all of our benefits are hinged on our late spouse um, and on not being remarried. Um, The age of remarriage is 57. So for a a lot of us, it's a very long time to to start life over again um, because all the benefits and those sort of things are hinged to the death of our spouse. Even insurance paperwork still comes in his name. I can... I can only imagine the red tape and the bureaucracy that you've had to deal with for the last right. eight years. Um, that is got, got to drive you absolutely insane. I, we'll get to that uh, portion of, of sure. you know, what you've done, but we always kind of start back at the beginning when we talk to all of our guests who are, who are military members and we ask them, you know, how they got in the military, but I guess it's easier to ask you about how you and Ed met and, and, you know, did, was he always part of this military lifestyle since you've known him? Absolutely. Um, We're really lucky. I was 19 and Ed was 20 when we met here, just a couple of streets over from where I live now. So I can walk by the house where we met Um, any given day of the week. He was at the University of South Carolina. I was at the College of Charleston and um, my parents had moved here my freshman year of college, so I didn't know anyone from this area. Unbeknownst to me, he, his parents and my parents lived just a couple of streets apart. He knew my sister from high school, and we were friends for a really long time. We traveled together. We went to places together. He spent holidays at our house and everything. It was a long time before we decided that we wanted to date. And um, so it was a nice, long courtship, nice, long friendship friendship into more. Um, By that time, by the time we graduated from college, he wasn't sure he was going to get an army commission at all. He actually spent the summer working for my dad. And by that fall, um, he was sent on his first assignment, which was to Korea. So um, a long way from Charleston, South Carolina, for him to go over to Korea there. Um, We stayed in touch. We both diverged on our paths a little bit, um, came back together and um, got married, had kids, and really enjoyed a great life together. Um, so when you guys had first started, you know, getting together, even though it was in the military, it was, it was a pre-9-11 world. Right, uh, exactly. So it, it would, I guess nothing at that point in time would have sort of scared you off about, you know, marrying somebody who had, had a military lifestyle or had the military in front of them, correct? Absolutely. It was a very different world. I mean, we did watch a little bit of like the Falkland invasion, but it was about two minutes on the six o'clock evening news. There was no real chance of a worldwide catastrophic situation such as an Afghanistan happening or a 9-11. There was nothing on our radar to indicate that that would be really part of our lives. It was looking more towards being a stepping stone. Um, Ed had a master's in military history. The goal had always been to be a professor of military science. So at his age, it was kind of seen as the first step and the way to achieve the goal of being a professional, a professor of military science and as kind of having an academic uh, for a university lifestyle after he finished his time in the army. You'll always remember your PMS if you did uh Yes, exactly. 
Uh, I, I, as a graduate of ROTC, I have never forgotten either of the two folks who have, have done, uh, who were my professor of military sciences. And uh, it, it, uh, it was very much a, those are, you're an impressionable young individual uh, starting out your military journey. Uh, and this is the first colonel that you're ever introduced to. And it's, it's somebody who always makes an impression because so many of us colonels, you know, all we do is talk, right? And we're trying to be impressive. We're trying to sound smart and trying to look intelligent and not screw, well, at least me. Uh, I'm just trying not to screw up. So, you know, um, it, it, it's always interesting. I, I never had heard of anybody wanting to have that job other than folks who, you know, could parlay that sort of position into something full-time post-military career, right? Right. Like, most officers who were on active duty hated the idea of doing ROTC or recruiting because those, those used to be definitive hallmarks. You had to do one of the two of them as like a check-the-block kind of assignment. Everybody had to go through it, and, and people kind of look sideways at at doing ROTC, but you say Ed, Ed was desiring it. He really, really wanted to make – he had such a firm commitment to his soldiers throughout the career. And he really felt like he could make a difference, impressing those young minds, encouraging people to have the military as a career and not just as a, Oh, let me do ROTC serve my, you know, four to six years and be done, but looking at it long-term using it as an investment in the future. And that was the plan for us using it as an investment in the future. He was wildly successful in his military career. He had gone to airborne school, ranger school, ended up as the HHD commander for the ranger training brigade and had lots of interesting assignments because he was a signal officer, but had the ranger background as well. So it was always a fun experience to be attached to those tactical units versus necessarily a signal unit. Now, with him doing all those things, and obviously, you know, Ranger School's nine weeks, you know, you have the Airborne School three, four weeks. Like, you know, I don't know how often he was gone prior to 9-11. Do you, do you look back and think, did it seem like he was gone a lot prior to actually having combat kick off? Well, it did. And you have to keep in mind, it was a very, very different world back then. I mean, our best line of communication was letters, right? I mean, there's not, I mean, we're on a Zoom call today, but there was no Zoom. There were no cell phones even. I mean, you might be able to get you know, a used call to be a in. Phone, like on the post where you could, you exactly. know. Exactly. Like I'm going to call you at 11.35 p.m. Yeah. And, and nothing put a, a coin in a phone and it would let you make a call. Absolutely. So a very different world. So those time periods of being apart, in a way, later on, we were a little spoiled because like when you didn't get the Zoom call or the phone call, it felt a little bit more of a loss. But if you didn't necessarily see a letter in the mail, it just was like, okay, I'll be on the lookout for it tomorrow. So while he seemed like he was gone a long time, a lot of that time was spent at locations near to where I was. And so I was able to, to scoot over for graduations and for events and those sort of things. And it's really nice now, you know, all of these years later, I still have all of those old letters. I have, you know, when later on, when it became emails, I've got printouts of emails and it's nice to have those things that I can hold in my hand and read and have those memories as well. 
so where are you guys on 9-11 and, and is where is that as far as duty location and everything? So we're at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, he is the HHD commander for the Ranger Training Brigade. Um, we just, he had been there a little bit longer than I had. So I didn't even have um, an updated military ID to get on post or anything. 9-11 happens. I, I don't know how I'd let my ID expire, but um, we're, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We're there. Um, honestly, I was out shopping and at a store, like at a Pier 1, and Pier 1 used to do these things like fake newscasts, like from greetings from the jungle and everything. So it's over their radio, and I was not even positive that it was a real event um, that was going on. Went back home and turned on the news, saw everything that was happening. We just, we had no idea what was going to happen, what the deployment situation was going to look like at that time, because, I mean, They've got people in the field for ranger school. He's there in charge of making sure all those folks are accounted for and everything. We don't know what the situation is, if this is the first of many attacks. And so you just kind of go into defense mode. I mean, you go to the grocery store, make sure you've got supplies laid in and just kind of hunker down and prepare for the worst. He was, post was shut down completely at Fort Benning for, um, for many hours before they let anyone out. It was, you know, I, I think, maybe even the next morning after 9-11. And um, it was uh, honestly a sense of relief knowing that he was in a leadership position there and that imme not immediately um, deployable to help with that situation. What did he say to you when you guys first had a chance to sit down? I mean, was, was he cognizant of, you know, hey, Barkley, this is going to change our lives forever. I'm going to head over to combat. Or was he still thinking, hey, look, I'm in this sort of training school position, I'm, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon kind of deal. We really knew that it would be life-changing forever. I have a note that he left me after he came back home that said, you know, how glad he was that he came home to to our family, how glad, you know, that there were people all over the world that were deployed that were not getting the chance to come home and put their arms around their loved one and say how happy they were to be there that night. But we really, the handwriting was on the wall that it was going to be a very different worldwide situation after this. I mean, it, nothing would ever be the same from then on, right? For And not just for our family, but for, for so, so many many families and so many other families were put in the position of immediate deployment, immediate report for duty kind of thing. We luckily had a little bit of time in there that, um, you know, we went on from Georgia to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, not really even thinking that, um, that by that point that Afghanistan would be on the horizon necessarily. Um, you know, he always said it's like practicing for a ball game. You feel like you need to go. But he had also experienced that sort of war situation back in, in the Bosnian conflict and, and had been in some dicey situations there. So he was not especially excited about being back in a combat field in a combat role. Were there any conversations between you and him where you said to him, and I think, you know, you need to get out. I think, I think we need to pivot here and, and change. I, I, you know, I'm concerned about what may happen. Were any sort of those conversations about the gravity of what was in front of you or could be in front of you at some point? 
it never occurred to me to have that conversation with him. Um, wow. he, ha- he, he was so committed to a military career. We were committed to a military lifestyle as a family. And we knew going into it that it was an inherent risk of the career and, and something that we could be faced with. I mean, you always hope for the best in that situation, that you're not going to be in a position that I'm talking to you as a gold star wife today, but certainly something that we knew was a possibility. Even as he deployed for Afghanistan, the the consensus was that he was going to be behind security gates, working on um, signal operations, and that would not really be in the position to kind of be out in the thick of things. So until the day that it happened, I really, I thought that he would be decently safe and sound even in, in Afghanistan. So you mentioned you were at Benning, you go to Leavenworth, eventually you get sent over to Italy, which is where right. you posted. Um, you know, with going to Europe, did, did, did when you, when he got that assignment, did anything at all shift and go, you know, we're generally closer to the Middle East. Maybe uh, this is becoming more of a realistic possibility here as, as things kicked off. I mean, you know, Iraq had kicked off too as well. So now you had right. two places going on. Uh, did you feel at any point it was a fait accompli that he was going somewhere into a combat zone? Absolutely. When we first posted to Italy in 2003, um, there was a huge situation going on in Africa that lots of conflict there. So as part of CTAF was overseeing the African continent at that point, too, we basically moved to Italy and he went to work. Um, We moved there in early July. He did not have a day off until October of that year at all. Um, I was expecting our younger son, Luke. So it was a very different transition to Italy, very much on my own. Our daughter was there with us. Um, So I was relieved that he was not immediately deployed to Africa or to a warship off the coast of Africa to do that. became pretty clear um, after a year or so that he would be Again, we thought it was a very short period of time. He was going to leave in February, should have been home um, in late April, early May. We were planning a move to Germany for him to go to work for the um, Fifth Signal Brigade up there. And so we thought as far as deployments go, it'll be as good as it can get. He's going to be quick in, quick out and be home. We'll make a move to Germany. And then, you know, we basically had four years after that to, to commit to the army and, and see if we couldn't get back to South Carolina. Um, when he finds out he's going to Afghanistan, even under those circumstances, which is not a year long deployment, in some cases they were extended beyond that. Right. Uh, you know, what were the nature of your conversations with him? Did Were, were there any fears expressed on either side? Were there any concerns expressed? I mean, what, what, if you don't mind peeling back the curtain a little bit. What, what sure, were happy to. I mean, I was petrified. I mean, I had such a bad feeling about it all along. As soon as the time started wearing down, everything took on super significance. I mean, like sitting at a family dinner, you look over, you watch him playing with the kids, you watch him like hanging out with our Italian neighbors, drinking grappa on Saturday mornings, you know, all of the things took on like larger than life proportions, wondering, is this going to be the last time that this happens? He, he, kept assuring me over and over and over again that nothing would happen to him. 
And I had no choice but to believe him in that, even as I had just a sense of dread about him going, was not looking forward to him being there at all. Um, but we were lucky in that we had, as a signal officer, we had good lines of communication open when situations would happen and they would cut comms, he would always reach out to me and say, situations happened, comms cutting now, I'm safe and sound. So when actually April rolled around and I didn't get that message from him, I I assumed that something was amiss, even as we were getting word that he couldn't have been a part of that. Prior to him leaving, and you talk about those moments and-, and- sure. You know, I can remember going through them on my own, you know, with my family wondering, you know, is this the last time we'll all be together kind of deal? Um, were there were there any conversations you had with yourself in your mind that you held back from him? Was there anything that you wish you had kind of spoken to him about before he left that you never got a chance to say to him? I wish I had been better about insisting that he like write letters to our children that they could have in milestones. I, because our son was just 15 months old when Ed was killed, and he has no memory of it. And in, in, in that way, does not have any direct communication from him at all. It would have been really nice to, I wish I had insisted on, you know, at least a video clip, a letter for your 16th birthday, letter for high school graduation. But I, I felt like I was tempting fate by fate by asking for those things it's like if i don't have them it won't happen but in hindsight i really do that we wish that we my kids had some of those tangible items from him do you think he would have responded favorably had you asked him or do you think he would have said uh, barkley no i'm not doing that it's bad luck i'm coming home kind of deal I think he would have responded favorably. He made, um, he read like stories into videos for them. He, um, he left funny messages. He left a few like cards for, you know, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, that sort of thing. So I think he would have re- responded very positively towards those things. Just didn't really, it was more me thinking I was like putting bad juju out there if I asked for the things. But I feel certain that he would have done that. And in fact, when we were moving out of the house, I mean, we, we, all the Italian Packers, all of our friends, like we looked for these thinking, surely he stuck them somewhere and, um, and never did find them. So um, I know that they don't exist. When does, when does he depart for Afghanistan? You know, the army has such a fun way of doing things. He leaves uh-huh. on February 13th, right before Valentine's Day. So, you know, we're in Italy. Um, our, it was great. The Italian school system had high school and middle school on one side and elementary school on the other. So friends were like, hey, you're coming with us to to the school. We're going to sell Valentine's for the kids. So everybody did a really good job of like, buffering that time and they were supposed to fly out from Italy um there was terrible weather and they ended up like bussing up to Germany um because we had a young child at home he had had to defer a lot of his vaccinations and um and shots to go to Afghanistan until the morning of so we do have pictures of him you know sitting in a tent getting a thousand shots then getting on a bus to ride for on a nice you know eight hour bus journey to to Germany there um, before they actually deployed to Afghanistan. It took them a little bit longer than we had anticipated for him to actually get in country there because of, of weather delays. So he wasn't there, but two months before he was killed. It was a right. short, very uh, short period of time. 
So when he gets on ground, I, I know you mentioned you guys had great communications, obviously, with him being in that world. He had access to, to other things that normal, you know, soldiers wouldn't, um, or at least the, the availability to do it more often. Right. Uh, he had access to. So did, did you get start to get any level of comfort as things kicked off? Like, I'm speaking to him routinely. Uh, he says he's behind a desk. Like, uh, you know, I mean, did, did you sort of fall into a routine about the whole thing? We did fall into a routine. We had days and times that we would set up to talk. You know, Afghanistan was still about five, six hours ahead of Italy at that time. So we could carve out time that was early evening for me, but later night for him when it was a little quieter. Um, you know, we still had the the phone calls. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that, that you get the allotted amount of time. And then it starts saying, you know, like two minutes, one minute, and the countdown begins on those phone calls. Um, we didn't do a lot of video calls, um, but we did have regular phone communications a couple of times a week. He was really um, hesitant to share with me the times that he was off of off of post there at Bagram. Um, he apparently was going around to a lot of other places. Um, we got tickled because a few of our friends like sent me pictures like, hey, I saw him today. And I was like, what do you mean? He's not supposed to be there with you. And so there were a few of those oopsies of um, him. But he, again, he always assured me that he was very, very safe. From what I understand, a couple of weeks before the helicopter incident took place, he had gone um, deep behind enemy lines, helped restore some communications for some guys that got in trouble. And um, we we know that that mission was was successful. So it I did not know about that until after he was killed when I got word that, you know, thanks to him, um, this operation went well, that people's lives were saved. And it was a nice postscript knowing he had done that. Do I wish he had maybe clued me in a little bit more about what was going on? I do, but I also know that I would have... Um, been in a position of just abject worry when I was at home with young kids. And um, I think he really did spare me that and save me from that. What was it like for you and the other military wives in Italy at the time while the unit was away? I mean, did you start to connect with them more? I mean, it's, it's definitely different in foreign countries when you have other military spouses around because you know, again, it's it's just a different environment than it is in the United States. But were, were you were there regular meetings for you and the other military spouses and everything? We really were in such a fortunate position in Italy because we did not live on posts. We lived in an Italian neighborhood and instantly with having young children there in a neighborhood of mainly, you know, people my parents age. We had a great Italian support system as well. Um, my neighbors were given permission to bring my daughter off of the school bus. They, because there was like a school bus with a driver and an aide on the school bus. So, you know, there were days that they were greeter at the school bus and we had to give them a pass to do that. So we not, we were kind of doubly lucky in that, that we had the 
support system of those on post, but we also had this incredibly generous, warm Italian neighborhood that, you know, manja, manja, they were always feeding us and taking care of us. Um, my neighbors would come over several times a week and, you know, bathe my kids, put them to bed, insist that I put my feet up and take care of me. Um, and then there was a whole, once the deployment started, they were kind of a rolling deployment. So not everybody went all at the same time from um, Vicenza. And so we created opportunities to get together. We did like a weekly coffee. We made a point of going to pick up at carpool and meeting early and doing stuff and just carving out those times together. Um, Post did a really good job of making sure that there were school events, that there were, you know, um, spring football games, field days, that kind of thing that would give us a chance to be together and have that connectivity. As a 100% Italian uh, and an Italian-American from a very deep Italian family, it warms my heart to, to hear that, that that's how it went for you because that's what Italians do. That's our entire family. Yes. You know, of course, you had all those people there, and uh, and there were more in your business probably than you ever wanted them to be. But that's still kind of the way we are, you know. I mean, they're willing to help, but you know, there's always something to say, and there's always an opinion, and and you know, we're just very loud and in your face. So uh, it's it's welcoming, but you have to get used to it if you're not used to it. So uh, there there is that. Um, you mentioned uh, about your son as young as he was. Your daughter was seven at the time. What kind of questions was she asking about daddy while he was gone? Well, I mean, it was. She missed him. I mean, she was a daddy's girl. I mean, still is a daddy's girl. I don't think that ever really changes. And, you know, he did a really good job of, of making sure that he sent notes and cards just to her. Um, she has every time that he was around, he always did a lunchbox note. So she has all of those things that, that she saved from him. And even um, when she turned 18, got a tattoo with love and his handwriting on her her wrist. So she's got that always with her. Um, she just, we could not fathom because we had not seen him in so long that like he truly was not coming home to us. Even as they come to the door, you know, at first they're like, he's unaccounted for. So it was a long process. It wasn't a quick knock on the door. We've identified he's on this flight. Um, it was, you know, we heard about the crash I'm going to say like after nine o'clock on the day that it happened, um, you know, there were a few blurbs on CNN, um, but no information whatsoever, except that it was a German flight crew, that our guys were not involved with it in any way, shape or form. It took until almost five o'clock the day after for them to actually come to the house. By that time, not having heard from him, I just, I had a pit in my stomach. Um, I remember like picking up my daughter from school and usually, you know, would like change into casual clothes, hang out and everything. And I remember just sitting on the couch, making sure that, you know, my son had a dry diaper on, that we were all like, you know, in clothes, waiting to see what the next step would be. And they came to the house and we heard them before we saw them. Um, our living area was on the second floor. And so we heard of all the car doors and the, the word at that point was that he was unaccounted for. They thought he might be on this, this flight. They weren't sure. They didn't know because he had been off of post if he was somewhere else. Um, so it took then maybe almost three days for them to come and give us the word that he actually was gone and that they had identified his body. 
why do you think you you did those things with your children to make sure that they were sort of prim and proper and I mean, can you recollect what your thought process was? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. I really felt like it was a, a scene from a movie. Like, you know, you, you've seen that play out in a thousand different movies. I didn't want to be the person that, that you saw on the newscast, like, you know, in, your, in the wife beater and the cut-off shorts. I wanted to be the person that I had been as, as his wife and to present the best side of our family, even in the worst moment that we could possibly have because it was very important to me and does continue to still be very important to me to set the tone and to be a role model and those sort of things. I'm not saying my behavior is the necessarily the correct behavior, but I wanted to be the best version of myself and the best version of my family if these officials were coming into our home to give us this news. Well, for the record, there is no right or wrong or correct right. or behavior it's what you feel in those moments uh as your life is about to forever be changed so i don't think you know uh for what it's worth again there's you did what you felt was right and that's the right thing to do and, and especially in those moments um in the time between when they first came to the door to let you know that he was unaccounted for um i you know i know you mentioned what you had were feeling in the pit of your stomach and, and you said it was three days till you got the official notice right I can't imagine uh, the anxiety, the, the gut-wrenching feeling, the lack of sleep and everything that you had gone through. Can you take me with, through what those three days were like? Yeah, so it was it was crazy. We were starting spring break there. And so my parents were actually headed to Italy from South Carolina to be there. Um, we got the word that he was unaccounted for. They called me from the Atlanta airport because, I mean, you know, the the South, you can't go to heaven or hell without going through Atlanta first. And um, so they're in the Atlanta airport. I tell them that that they've come to the house, told me that he's unaccounted for. So they're literally in Italy the next morning. I mean, that they're there. Um, the, the post sent over a, a car and driver to get them and to to bring them home to me, but immediately the house was just filled with people. Um, over the course of about four days time, we had almost 400 people in and out of the house. Um, the commissary sent over, I mean, like you can't imagine the food that they sent over. Um, soldiers organizations on post brought over huge grills and put in my backyard, started cooking for everybody. Um, the PX sent over toys for my children, diapers my friends came and cleaned the, the house was clean because i was expecting my parents the next day but you know everybody came everybody just jumped in go mode and was there for me i didn't sleep at all um that was the big thing every time i laid down i just i it was like you just could not get settled. I did a little bit better once my parents got there. have a dear friend that luckily enough has moved here to Charleston, South Carolina, Tracy Bolin, whose husband, um, Sean Bolin, was was serving with, um, the. I believe he was with CTAF as well, but they've moved here to Charleston. She came with a notifying group um, that afternoon and she didn't leave my house. I mean, she did not leave my house at all for, for days and days and days. All the notes from like the casualty assistant officer, she wrote all of those things for me and just 
really stayed with me, held my hand. All the Italian neighbors were there. The pizzeria all around the corner sent pizzas over, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, everything that we needed. Our vegetable man brought all of our, you know, goods to the door. Our landlady said, you know, you will not pay rent again the whole time you leave here. And we were, again, in such a fortunate situation. The town had no idea how it worked with benefits and the the vice chancellor of the town came to my house the day after this happens in his little sash and everything and the town said you know we're willing to extend you a line of credit for as long as you need it um, to to keep you and your children comfortable here so the support was absolutely incredible from the get-go and and continued to be so um, and my aunt was um, headed to Italy in the next week or so she upped her time period. My sister was living in Arizona, was able to kind of come backwards in time and got to Italy very quickly. So I had family there to support me as well, in addition to our military and, you know, Vicenza community. What was the conversation you had with your daughter? Um, just that she knew as soon as they came home and we had talked about it, um, you know, that it was a possibility. Um you know, she was a little bitty girl. So it was hard to understand what was happening, the huge influx of people. Um, we had bought her, uh, she loved like little girl silky pajamas. And I had put a pair aside for like, if she was having a bad day. And I got those out and I said, you know, hey, your dad got you these. He wanted to, you to have them. Um, you know, if you were having a bad day, I think that this qualifies as a bad day. And she wore those pajamas for like three days running. Um, she really was so happy that my parents were there to kind of be a buffer zone. Um, my friends all did a great job with making sure that she was taken care of, that she was getting time away from the house, that she was not involved in hearing the nitty gritty details of the circumstances of what had happened at that point. How much did you want to know the nitty gritty details? I still want to know the nitty gritty details. The, um, the reports we have are incredibly redacted. Um, there are always, I think in a lot of these situations, there are rumors that fly around. I mean, certainly that very first evening, the Taliban is claiming responsibility for shooting down a Chinook. Um, our official report is that it got caught in a stand, a sandstorm. Um, so I mean, there are definitely questions there. There are a lot more unknowns than knowns um, to me still out there. Um, I don't feel like we, I mean, I've got autopsy reports and those kind of things, but um, I don't feel like that we've ever been given quite the full story of what happened in that. Do you know why he was on the helicopter? So from what I understand, he was catching a ride back um, from having been at another post where he was working on some comms there, um, that it was just very much a uh, I guess they call it like a milk truck, a milk run that um, people just pile on and yep. go. Um, but it was a really odd conglomeration of people in that 18. There were some civilian servants, um, the helicopter crew, and um, just 
it, you know, kind of a, a mixed bag of folks there. Um, it's really odd. We do have pictures of him getting on the helicopter. One of his college friends, Rob Heath, who is a medical officer, um, got on the second helicopter that took off at the same time. We have pictures of him and Rob and him on the tarmac that morning. We have an especially poignant picture of he and Rob standing there in front of, it was the Hall of Heroes, but Ed's head is blocking out the H and it says all heroes on that photograph. But we do have, I mean, like an, an unusual amount of photographs from that morning. And it sounds like um, it was just a really like perfect storm of, of, of weather, of giving orders to fly, not giving orders to fly, that, um, that things just did not come together as planned at all. As I understand it, that second Chinook that took off landed safely. Um, it did, yes. How much do you rack your brains wondering, Ed, why didn't you just get on the other helicopter? Well, I mean, a ton, because our friend Rob was on the other helicopter. It was a quick out and back. From what I understand, an Afghani girl had gotten um, bitten by a snake, and they went out to grab her very quickly. Um, it doesn't, at that time, I think there were some issues with the roster and knowing who was exactly on the manifest for this. You know, they tell me that thanks to this accident, that those loopholes and um, situations have gotten tightened up you know in the the months following that but you know it's just like yes why did he have to get on that one knowing our friends were on the other one why didn't he just jump on with that so yeah it's a hard pill to swallow we are very fortunate though and we've got to know um, other family members who lost loved ones on the flight um, the windy 25 crew has a memorial fund and we have been actively involved with with meeting those families getting to know them and knowing the people through them that he spent his last you know few minutes of life with. what uh what still sticks with you about the accident, if anything? I The biggest thing is just the not knowing. Um, it, it took a long time for, for us to, to officially know that he was there. Um, you know, there, there are stories about the rear rudder being found, you know, a good ways off. I'm told that that's consistent with the sandstorm, but it's also, in my mind, I'm not a ballistics expert, but consistent with the, the Taliban said we shot this helicopter down. I, I really understand in my heart of hearts the necessity of never acknowledging that was the case because it would have given them the, the knowledge that this would work and um, that other lives would have been lost because of that. But it, it's frustrating that, you know, Ed was kind of a guinea pig in this, for lack of a better word, a guinea pig on on, on the manifest um, and that situation not being tightened up, a guinea pig on flying in conditions that may not have been ideal and um, that 18 people lost their lives um, in what I really feel like are, are preventable circumstances. After the literal fog of this whole thing clears, you know, in a yes. couple of days it dies down and you, you, start to become a little bit less numb. Uh, did you have a moment where it all came back to you and hit you again? 
Yes, and it does from time to time. You hear um, you hear stories. I mean, just this past Memorial Day, uh, a person that I don't know well had done some research, wanted to do a Memorial Day message about Ed. And I heard for the first time, I mean, it's 18 years later, heard for the first time that six of the 18 were never recovered at all. And so there are little tidbits like that that eke out, you know, every now and then that that just make you scratch your head a little bit and wonder, you know, I'm lucky, I guess, and that we did get a coffin that came home. It was a sealed coffin, that sort of thing. But but then I know other families that got, you know, like cigar box sizes of, of, of remains that came back to them. So I don't know in any of those situations if there's an ideal case scenario. But then when you hear something, I mean, just this this year that, you know, six people had never been recovered. That was news to me. I'd never heard that part before. And I have verified that since that time. Have you tried to press the military for more detail? Even now, I mean, look, we're not in Afghanistan anymore. What's the point? Like what, what, what 18 years later, what, who is the information going to help? Um, so, you know, do you feel like at least the government and, and the, the United States military owes you this information still? I would very much like at some point to have a, a very sit down, realistic conversation, not only myself, but with the other families. You know, the other families also, there were bits and pieces of rumors that have floated around out there um, that, you know, you get this little nugget of information and it makes you kind of shake your head a little bit and, and wonder what is accurate in that. I mean, I would hope that at some point, and we are in communications with the helicopter commander of the Windy 2-5. He was just here this past weekend for my daughter's birthday. He's done a great job of, of embracing my family, being here for, for important events, you know, keeping us in the loop. But um, I really would hope that at some point, and I don't know what the statute is, that we would know, kind of sit down with everybody and have a conversation of, these are the rumors we've heard. Can you walk us through why we would have heard that? And I don't know when that might be forthcoming. So... You know, it's look, it's been 18 years. Uh, yes. I don't doubt for one moment that, you know, nothing is easier. Things are just different. Right. Um, right. You know, I'm sure there are still moments that, you know, you're overcome with grief and overcome with emotion and, and, and that, you know, nobody would ever begrudge you that. Um, and the same goes for your children. Um, but, you know, where are you on your personal journey with healing from all this? I mean, how how much are you feeling like the new Barclay is as good as the new Barclay can be? Well, when we first moved back to Charleston, my daughter had a teacher that was a widow and she was, I mean, let's just face it. She was not the nicest person. She was pretty bitter. She was pretty salty. She was, um, and I remember approaching her about just like, hey, like a smoother, gentler outlook on life. And she said to me then, when you've been through what I've been through, you will be exactly like me 
in a few years. So that was a cautionary tale very early on for me. I've been told for some family members, you know, that you've changed. Well, of course I would change in 18 years, even if he were with me. I don't feel like the world owes me anything. I don't feel like I walk around with a chip on my shoulder. I have done my best to be a good example for other military widows. There is sometimes a sense of entitlement or a sense of, um, you know, I'm a military widow. I deserve this. I have definitely advocated on the policy side for benefits to be updated and that sort of thing. But I, I don't feel like I've ever been demanding of that. Um, I've tried to get out of the world a few times. I'm like, I don't want this to necessarily be my continued identity. Every time I try to do that, it seems like circumstances come up that, that a voice is needed to share the story and to, to tell the unique story of our circumstances. I was an older widow when Ed was killed. I mean, I was 34 years old, about to turn 35 years old. So many of the widows were very, very, very young. I mean, like early 20s. And so over the years, it's become apparent that there is a need for a voice that had a little bit of experience under the belt, had a little bit of, of involvement with army organizations, in my case, or military organizations that could take that experience and parlay it into a way to make a change. Um, it will always be part of my identity. I don't think that I can ever escape it. I don't think that there ever will be a completely new Barclay Murphy in that regard um, because I continue to work on it, continue to advocate it for um, improvements. Even as I say, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I continue to um, to keep my 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 spoon in that pot a little bit and keep stirring a little bit because there are lots of things that that need to be changed and um, that, that there need to be continued voices that are able to put into words and to put into writing how to advocate for that change. Um, since you brought it up, I, I mean, I do want to talk about your children real quickly, but of course. I, I get to the advocate, the ad, advocating part of it, because, you know, that is the other, you know, if there's a good that comes out of this uh, and, you know, you talked about your husband being able to change the way manifest things were going well, you know, his death and subsequently your efforts have changed military policy here. So kind of start at the very beginning of this, because at what point in time, you know, once you're able to sort of start picking up the pieces, do you realize that like, hey, you know, I want to do this, but if I do it, all of a sudden I'm going to lose all my benefits and and or I, I would like to move here or whatever, whatever it may be. Where, where do you start first getting the inkling that the rules are sort of set against military spouses who are who have lost their husband in combat? Well, I mean, the biggest role up until just a couple of years ago was that the age of remarriage was 57 years old. I mean, that's for, utterly ridiculous. I, I mean, it's it's insane, right? I mean, like, that'd and, be ridiculous for 1960. Right. Um, well, I mean, in 1960, I would not have even received my husband's benefits. They would have gone to a male family member or to my dad. Oh to distribute out to me. Oh. So I guess we've made progress in, yeah. in some ways there. All relative, right? <laughs> All relative, yes. So, I mean, even with that, I mean, the way death notifications are handled, you know, there was there was just like a telegram left on the door during the Vietnam era. And, you know, uh, 
there was so much advocacy and you know, women can move mountains with this stuff. It was women that changed the way that death notifications were issued during the Vietnam War. You know, the, the wife of the We Were Soldiers guy advocated for that change and made that be a different situation. So I, th I think that what has happened is, you know, as we had this huge increase in military spouses um, that were without their loved ones, that there was a big struggle to to kind of play catch up. Um, you know, we plan for every situation and kind of a war scenario. We know what equipment is needed and everything else. And I think that one thing that we have failed in is also taking into account the the bad side of it. It's like, if we don't talk about casualties, they won't happen. Well, casualties are going to happen. And in my mind, some of the things that we faced as far as, as benefits and that sort of thing should have been addressed, you know, as we were starting, you know, many years ago and like little inklings with the Gulf War, those kind of situations that heated up a tiny bit, a world situation that might require those things to be addressed. I think that our numbers were so high in the Afghani conflict and in Iran that, that everyone was kind of ill-prepared to deal with it. Um, and it, despite best efforts, um, you know, from the get go, there were things that just kind of made you shake your head. I mean, even now the age of remarriage is 55 years old. Um, you know, I'm 54 next month. So, I mean, I guess if I wanted to do that, but I've had a whole lifetime without him from 34 years old to 54 years old. I've had, you know, 20 had years without him. retirement without him. Right. So, and it, it's really different for, for military spouses and you know you're a federal employee but it only like the SVP DIC offset only applied to military spouses this age of remarriage only applies to military spouses if he was you know a CIA agent or a postman killed in the line of duty there would not be these circumstances. So to impose these things on military widows who've already given the ultimate sacrifice, it's just kind of another whammy to, to deal with. When you are starting this process to advocate for change for this thing, right. <laughs> you've already run into the government kind of not giving you full pieces of information on the death of your husband. What? <laughs> What made you think you were going to have any more success uh, going through this whole process? Well, I, because there's safety in numbers. So when you get a group of, of people advocating together and working together, um, you know, it's not just, it's not 18 families asking for information. It's, you know, it's lots and lots of, of widows, of military surviving spouses that are in the same circumstances and starting to get together with them at events and hearing these things led to to, you know, being able to gather stories and get concrete information of how these circumstances were affecting people's lives and then finding organizations that could kind of spearhead those, those efforts instead of just one person writing a letter to a governor saying, I need help with this, but, but 
really concentrating those efforts on on common ground to to make change happen. And you know, there are things that are still going on. Just the this year, the um, Love Lives On bills are have reached Congress of trying to lower the age of remarriage or eliminate that in its entirety. I mean, there are other things that come up from time to time that that there's still advocacy needed to be given on our DIC benefits have not seen a significant increase in lots of years. They're not in keeping with any other, you know, uh, federal employee um, benefits in that regard. And so just looking for some equity and those sort of things, we're not quite there yet. It's it's mind blowing to me that after 20 years of combat and, and two wars, at least both that lasted a decade long, um, we haven't even bothered to remotely fix this. I mean, you could argue a lot of the VA changes that were that have happened recently uh, only happened because of the post 9-11 war. And they've been stuck in that same post-Vietnam sort of mentality and never were forced to change. And now, now you know, you are doing the same thing. I mean, I, I get the idea of somebody trying to um, sort of play the government a little bit like, you know, if you really wanted to concoct some true crime elaborate scheme where the death of your spouse and, you know, marrying else somebody else could be for money. Like, But when it comes to actual combat and your your husband is killed in a combat zone, they're, 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 how can you defraud the government on this? It's not like you called the Taliban and said, yo, take them out. Like, I mean, it's right. just, like the, the, the concept of it and the idea that they were going to limit your remarrying age seems so maniacally stupid. Uh, I, I, I wasn't even until I read your story, I wasn't even aware that that was a thing Like right. I wasn't aware that they were going to limit how you're going to live the rest of your life without your husband. I mean, I, you know, uh, all I could say is thank you, uh, because I think these are things that, you know, because the military is predominantly male, they never get a light shown on them. Right. Like um, when 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 for us, it doesn't affect us. I mean, right. so few females who have been killed in combat, let alone ones who are also military spouses and in the military that they would, you know, have to have to go through all this, that they, like you said, the, the safety in numbers isn't there. So um, I think it's, it's critical that you have taken on this endeavor and, and you're actually, you know, you're, you're succeeding in it, even though it's taken way too long. When do you cross paths with the gold star wives of America? Um, I've really stepped back a little bit. I kind of have taken the summer off. The last thing I did was did um, testimony, congressional testimony for this Love Lives On Act, um, just saying how it had impacted my life. I've not been in 18 years. I've not been in a significant relationship at all. I feel like I've kind of done my kids a disservice for never like giving, showing them what a loving adult relationship looked like from my perspective. But it wasn't worth the risk of losing all that. It's also hard to foster a relationship with somebody knowing that you're not, I was not willing to have other children outside of of marriage. I wanted to be married. So, you know, 
you'd have to be satisfied with the children that I had or we had. Um, I wasn't willing to do that again. I wasn't willing to get married and give up the my income that my spouse had had earned all of those years. And it really, you know, knowing that there is a limited future, I think would take a very special person to navigate that and want to be with you on that. In my case, I never found that person. I don't know if I ever will. Um, I think it's really hard for someone on the outside, especially someone from the civilian world, to to navigate the way these ghosts kind of linger on. Um, everything, you know, all of my health insurance I have to give, Ed's social security number, all of my children's education benefits. We're submitting a death certificate along with a marriage certificate, uh, DD-1300, you know, a casualty report as all of these happy events are taking place. It's a lot for somebody to navigate alongside. So in my case, it's just easier to do it on my own. Um, I, I, whether that's the right decision or not, I, I can't go back in time. I do. I. It's lonely now that my kids are out of the house. I do wish that there was someone here. Um, you know, I wish it was Ed more than anything. But um, it's a very... It, you know, everyone talks about moving on and reaching a place in your grief journey that you feel comfortable with it. But I feel like the way the circumstances are set up, it kind of keeps you in a place of always, of never really being able to close the door on it because everything is so intrinsically tied to the, the dead military member. Over the years, uh, when it comes to your children, um, you know, what has their grief journey been like? Uh, and it must be doubly as hard because you're going through your own and certainly you're missing, you know, your husband, best friend, you know, all the all the things that, you know, come along with marriage and, and everything else. Uh, and then you have to sort of be there to help them along their journey. Uh, and, and it must be tough for your daughter. I, I, let me rephrase that. I don't know if it's tougher for your daughter than your son. But they are two different ones because, you're, as you mentioned, your son never had the, the fortune pleasure of having any connection with his father. Right. Absolutely. For you? I mean, for her, you know, he promised her as well that he would come home. So that sense of betrayal has definitely impacted her life as she's gone from being, you know, a little girl to a grown woman. Um, definitely has impacted her outlook on things, her ability to trust other people, um, you know. She has, she's incredibly successful. She graduated college in three years and went on to get her first master's, is just about to finish her second um, leadership program. My son has been equally successful. You know, he went to the Citadel on, um, on a partial scholarship. He's wound up after his freshman year there with almost a 4.0 GPA and holding rank for next year. So they are my greatest achievement in all of this. If, if I haven't done anything else right, I have done them right. And I'm incredibly proud of that. You know, it hits at really odd times. We were, we just got back from vacation last week. We got home on Father's Day. You know, you kind of put it in the back of your mind that it's Father's Day. Then my son posts a really old picture of he and his dad, like, you know, with him holding him as a baby and says, you know, the only thing I have of you is grainy photographs. And it's true. That's all he has of him. Um, you know, my son, especially, 
being at the Citadel and trying on that military lifestyle, I don't think he'll have any future military service because I'm so opposed to him doing that. I was like, going to ask. I, I mean, yeah, we, like, no, I no, no. I'm like, oh, he went to the Citadel. That's an interesting yes, that sort of coastline. Yeah, it gives him a taste of the life without having the commitment to the life. So it gives him a chance to experience some of the things that his dad did give him that connectivity without having to do at, you know, end of day military service. He's only a freshman though. He doesn't have to, but he can. Uh, The system will give you an easy path into becoming an officer. If you'd like to be one, if he comes to you a year or two years down the road and said, Mom, I want to do this. I want to be an officer like Dad. As much as you know, what what do you what, have you thought about what you'd say? Have you thought about that conversation? Oh, I, I don't even have to think about it. I've clearly said from the time he could voice any interest in it, not just no, but hell no. Like I mean, that I just can't. I don't want you to romanticize the life that we had as a family. I don't want you to romanticize your dad's death. The reality is that you know, like. If you want a family, if you want the lifestyle that you say that you want um, with with being there for your kids' birthdays and Christmases and anniversaries and that sort of thing, none of that is guaranteed even under the best circumstances of the military. And I've, I've been very very honest with with him in that regard of how often his dad was gone when he was little that you know he does have those grainy pictures but there were you know weeks in between those grainy pictures when they were on field deployment exercises or going here for a few days or whatever it's uh, I think it remains a very um, difficult lifestyle to have a family with and that's very important for him to want a family and to do that. I've been very clear that it is not a lifestyle that I would support for him. In fact, that I would do everything in my power to to make that not happen. Um, forgive me if I'm, I'm misreading this, but I, I detect a, a note of bitterness there. Um, and and I, it's, I think it's understandable for, for the record, if I am accurate. And I guess it's making me wonder, because we haven't really touched on this word yet, but I mean, are you still angry? Just in general at the circumstances. I don't I don't even know who it would be directed at, but I mean, is there anger towards the military? Is there anger towards God? Is there anger towards, you know, maybe Ed for, for choosing this life and putting you in this? Like, what, 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 where, is, that, is that a fair word? From time to time, yes. I get angry that he's not here for things. I get angry when I want to know, like, hey, remember when we were visiting here? What was that restaurant? And I asked my daughter and she's like, mom, I was four years old. I have no idea. I'm angry about the things that he continues to miss. Right. I mean, cause it's not, those things don't go away. It's just more things that he's not a part of. So that's where the anger is. Um, not really anger at him because I feel like it was circumstances beyond his control. It's not like he went and willingly like, threw himself on top of a grenade to save someone or or do a circumstance like that. He was merely a passenger thinking he was getting to from point A to point B. So, and, you know, anger doesn't really behoove anyone in any way. It's kind of a wasted emotion. I mean, we miss him and we're, we're mad that he's not here, but not to a sense that, like, I wouldn't say it ever led to, like, a bitterness, more to just, like, that anger to tears. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, again, and and like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be presumptuous about what you're thinking and feeling, and and you know, so I, I hope I'm not. No, you're fine. Balance. Um, but you know, again, there was a certain look in your eye and sort of a tenor in your voice that when you were talking about the military, that it was like, you know, no, like I could just tell it was a sense of, you know, there was a the military sort of did this to me. And I'm not going to, as your mother, I'm not going to allow it to happen to you. Right. Well, I think it's really easy. I mean, even in losing a spouse to kind of romanticize the life that you had with them, right? They become kind of this infallible hero, young, handsome, dying in the line of duty and everything else. I I wanted to make sure that my children knew, you know, the other side of that and that it was not always an easy life, even under the best of circumstances. And that was really what I was trying to impart to my son is that, you know, yes, this is what your dad did, but he would be no less proud of you taking a different path than what he chose to do. There was never any conversation or any expectation that like, oh, I hope our kids follow in my footsteps. I mean, to us, I, I feel very much like it was a stepping stone. And um, it. I just wanted to make sure that they knew that, you know, the times that he was home with us, they were fantastic, right? It was, you know, sunshine and puppies and rainbows and all of those happy things. But the times in between that they were too young to know about, just wanted to make sure that they understood the flip side of what the life is. Because it's not just a life for the person that is serving. It's for you know, the the spouse, for the kids, and for everyone else. I certainly wouldn't discourage someone outside of my family for following in that career path. It was very good to us for a very long time. I, I honestly, there are lots of, of things that I miss about the lifestyle. I liked, I'm one of the crazy people that liked the moving, liked changing up our circumstances, exploring new places, meeting new things, you know, blooming where I was planted and everything. I just, for my son especially, wanted to remind him that um, that there's more to it than just the service aspect of it. If you were to come across another Gold Star spouse uh, and you found out they were, what what is that connection? What do you say to that person? How do you, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a secret handshake or anything. It's just one of those things. <laughs> Well, it's so, it's so funny for the first, I mean, even now and then when I'm at events with other gold star families, you look around the room and look at the the group of, of people gathered together and are like, my God, that really, that just is horrible for them. And it almost is like a, a little bit of a pause that like, oh, wait, I'm one of them too. So there's still a little, from everyone I talk to that is a gold star spouse, there is a little bit of that still unbelieving that you are a part of this sisterhood. And I'm just going to say sisterhood because the number of male surviving spouses are very, very minimal. It's way more of a, of a sisterhood than a brotherhood or a, a group there. Um, you know, I think that, you know, early on, and being involved with gold star spouses um, that it was a lot of kind of like my circumstances are worse than your circumstances. And um, I, as I've gotten older and people have gotten older and there kind of has been uh, 
as time goes by, I see less and less of that when I'm with other gold star spouses. Everybody has a unique story. And I, I see as time has gone by a lot more respect for the uniqueness of those stories, a lot more respect of we're all in this together versus um, my death sucks more than your death sucks. So. Yeah. I, I, I. I, I I don't even know how the comparisons don't fly around, um, but you know, because it's that's just an awful place to be, right? Like, I, right. I, I, that's that's never comfortable. Um, let me ask you, if you could go back uh, and tell yourself on April fifth, two thousand five, uh, a piece of advice about the next twenty four hours and the next eighteen years, what do you what do you think you'd say to yourself? Um, it never occurred to me that I could take time for myself in that. I very much thought that I had to be an example. Even in Vicenza, there were two other guys from Vicenza that were killed at the same time. Um, Ed was the at that time the only major on the on the flight. Um, since then, David Connolly was promoted to major um, after his death. I very much took it upon myself, you know, I was meeting with the chaplain and doing seating charts for the, for the memorial services on post. I was um, meeting with people to make sure that a bus was being sent for our Italian neighbors to be able to come to the memorial service on post, which was a new idea. You know, no one had thought that they might want to be included in that kind of thing. I very much stepped outside of myself and I worried a whole lot more about what people thought about me than what I was going through. And I had really little kids, so I never really had the chance to, you know, pull the blinds and get in the bed and curl up in a ball in the corner because somebody was there with a question or we needed to know, you know, what the next step was on this. Where are we going? You know, we ended up going to Germany for memorial services too, because I was the senior spouse in this. I very much took on a role of, you know, navigating this as like, you know, like, Oh, an ideal case scenario, you know, life magazine kind of military spouse wearing the right things, saying the right things. If I could go back and do it again, I would have, you know, said, lock the front door. We're not receiving anybody. We're going to hunker down for, you know, at least a few hours here. Just give us a little bit of time, even if we're only going to lay on the bed, not sleep. That's the thing that I would do. I would allow myself a little bit more grace. I was well more concerned with being the face of the military widow at that time. I would have allowed myself a little bit more, you know, stomping my feet, um, melting down, not standing up in front of hundreds of people giving a speech at the memorial service. Well, for what it's worth, uh, it sounds like you would have made your 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 husband, the leader and, and the leader of soldiers, very proud in those moments uh, for the way you handled yourself, because uh, that's what that's what leaders do. Right. Uh, sometimes you have to subjugate your own feelings, thoughts and emotions for the benefit of the group and those around you that you're, you're choosing to serve with. And uh, you filled that role admirably. And, and look, I think everything you say is fair. Right. I mean, yeah, uh, 
giving yourself grace and more time to heal and, and grieve and all those things are very reasonable requests that nobody would have would have had a problem with you doing. But again, you know, hindsight being 2020 right. in those moments, I'm sure part of your grief healing process was to just keep moving. Right. And if you right. can help somebody else, you can help yourself. If you can be there for somebody else, you can you can be there for your kids. You can you can sort of continue to advance the ball down the field, so to speak. And and I think that's part of it. Um, you know, when you talk to Ed in your private moments, um, what are those conversations like? I mean, mainly about our kids and, you know, how very proud he would be of them. Um, they've just, they've done so, so well. I mean, you know, you, you hear these stories about these kids who have lost their parent and they just go down these paths of like, of just deep, dark holes that they're not able to pull out of and just watching their success, watching the adults that they have, have turned into watching the way the sun shines on their head so often. I mean, it's really a gift, right? And we really try, you know, especially with the college educations and everything. I mean, my daughter's working on this degree again. She has VA benefits that are covering that for her. I mean, they watch some of their friends struggle with having to pay college tuition and everything. And I try to remind them that this is a gift from their dad, right? That, that being involved in this, having those, those benefits to take care of their education, they'll both graduate without any kind of college debt. I mean, I don't know anybody that's able to do that. Um, we've been very fortunate and, our circumstances and that, you know, I've had good people helping me out. I mean, they haven't wanted for anything in their lives. So, I mean, they're not spoiled by any set of circumstances, but all of those things are, are really, are really gifts from Ed. The fact that I'm able to be working on my PhD now and, and, you know, just do and focus on that primarily. I mean, that's a gift from him too. So during these quiet moments, you know, I just talked to him about, you know, we did okay with this. Like we, we pulled out, we, we miss you. We love you. We always will, but we have kept our head more than above water when a lot of people have not had that opportunity and not been that fortunate. We really have avoided some of the things that I know from other gold star spouses have been very, very big issues for them. And we have skillfully stayed away from some of those horrific circumstances. Well, look, uh, you're a champion. Um, oh, gosh, thanks. And uh, not only a champion uh, as a mother to your daughter, Ellie, and your son, Luke, but, you know, uh, to other Gold Star spouses uh, and what you've done in changing laws in Congress and, and getting things passed and changed for for their benefit. And you, you've you and your husband have both uh, set a course for things that have changed in the future that have changed lives. Uh, and, and I think that that is worthwhile. Uh, it certainly doesn't make up for anything, but uh, it is certainly notable and, and something that uh, there, there should be some pride in um, at least from an outsider's perspective looking in. Uh, and I appreciate your efforts um, to continue to fight on behalf of those who don't necessarily have the strength to, I don't want to on their own because it, it's important and it certainly is something that is needed and necessary. So I wish you continued success. Um, Thank you. It's an important legacy, not only in Ed's name, but having been a military spouse, it's a, it's, it's a nice legacy for me to leave behind as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And uh, 
I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your story. Um, and thanks and, for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And, and telling the story of Ed. Um, I, I know he's missed and loved by, by many, especially you and his children, but um, it's, it's just always great to spend some time with the gold star spouses because uh, they, it's an out of sight, out of mind thing, right? When the soldier is gone, there's a sense of, you know, we all just sort of gravitate away from those people because they're not in our inner circle anymore. You know, they're doing their own. We, we have to continue to serve and we have to continue to go to the next assignment and we have to continue to do this. And it's, then it's just you guys. It's just all the gold star spouses looking and trying to figure out what's next. And you've proven at several junctures that you've been a leader for all those, those women. And, and, and uh, they, they desperately needed you and you didn't even know it, you know? <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for recognizing that we are a part of this story. I know that this is a little bit of a different path for you to talk to a gold star wife and really appreciate you recognizing um, you know, that we are out there and giving me a chance to tell Ed's story and, and my family's story as well. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Again, it, this is, this is part of this journey for, for all of us here at the hazard ground and, and remembering those who are lost and loved uh, is, is a big part of why we're still doing this show and have been for the last six plus years, because um, th- these are, these are integral parts of the fabric of the military. And after 20 years of combat, we can't let them become just a footnote uh, on things. They need to be active stories that are continually told. So, and just like if it was a, a regular service member who didn't have a gold star spouse that was killed in combat, those same stories have to live on. And, and Absolutely, that's, what yes. hope, that's what we hope to do here. So, uh, well, thank thanks you. for saying his thanks. name. Thanks for saying his name. Oh, Major Ed Murphy won't, won't won't ever be forgotten and shouldn't be forgotten. But thank you for your grace. Thank you for sharing everything with us and continued success to you. But wishing you thank nothing you. but great blessings for you, Ellie, Luke, your entire family. And uh, we can't thank you enough for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you. Mark B. Murphy, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey.